Well, as they are taking their seats, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, if you'll take it and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 12. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your holy word, which is without error. And Lord, we thank you that it's given to us so that we can know more about your son, Jesus Christ. We can know your ways. And Lord, we can know your teachings. Father, we pray today that your word would become alive to us. And Lord, I pray that you would use it. I pray that you would use me to feed your people. And I pray that we would leave here being more like Jesus Christ, your son. And all these things we pray in his name. Amen. Well, if you've been keeping up with our study through, uh, remember we started back in the book of Genesis and we've been working our way through and uh, we are currently in the book of Matthew and we're taking more time in Matthew than we did the other Old Testament books. But if you remember at the end of the Old Testament, uh, Malachi told us that the messenger of the new covenant was coming. And we've learned in the book of Matthew that Jesus Christ is that messenger of the new covenant. And we've learned that John the Baptist was the the prophet and the spirit of Elijah who was going to come. And so we're taking our time in Matthew, learning about these things that Jesus is saying. And we're doing this because Jesus is ushering in uh, somewhat of a change in God's program. He's, God has been on one mission ever since day one, and that's to draw all the nations of the world together through Abraham. And now he's doing that through Jesus Christ, not through the law anymore. And so we're, we're digging into what Jesus is saying. And today we're getting into uh, a controversy that Jesus has gotten himself into. And it's about the Sabbath day. And the Jewish Sabbath day is actually on Saturday. And so we're going to learn here that the Pharisees have a big problem with some of the things that Jesus is doing on the Sabbath day. But you're going to learn that Jesus is not breaking the law. Remember, in the beginning of Matthew, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, not to break the law. And so you're going to learn here some things that the Pharisees had taken uh, out of context. And they had added their own uh, twist to some of the things that God said. And it had led them astray. And so let's go ahead and dig into Matthew chapter 12. And it says this in Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. So the idea here is that the disciples are walking along and they're walking by or through a grain field. And the idea isn't that they're harvesting grain, but they're kind of walking by and they're, they're grabbing the heads of the grain as they go by. You ever grabbed a plant or a flower by the stem and you kind of hold the stem snugly and all of the seeds pop off? We do that a lot with those bushes that have the red berries. We just put our hand up there, we pull them off, and then we throw the berries at people or things. You ever do that? You know, you all do that. And so same principle here with the grain. They're kind of walking down the road and they put their hand on the grain and instead of throwing it, they're eating it. Now, this was not illegal. If you were a farmer, you would not get upset at people doing this because uh, according to the law, you were not supposed to pick all of your crop anyways, but passerbys were supposed to be able to eat on their journey. Foreigners in your land were supposed to be able to eat. Now, this doesn't mean that the foreigners were to come in with their own tools and implements and steal all of your food, but as they were passing by, they could grab themselves a snack, no problem. And this is what the disciples are doing. But the Pharisees see what they're doing and they go, aha. The Pharisees were the type of people who love to catch you in those, aha. I knew it. I knew that's what you were doing all along and, and call you out on things that they thought that you were doing. You know, those people, 
that always want to go, aha, see, you're doing it. Who always think the worst of you, never give you the benefit of the doubt. And every time something comes up, it's like, aha, finally, I got you. Well, that's how these Pharisees are. And so now Jesus turns the tables and he says in verse three, but he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not allowed for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? And so Jesus catches them in their own aha moment. They say, aha, have you, do you realize your disciples are doing this, Jesus? And he says, well, haven't you read the law for yourself? And at that point, they kind of shrink down because they're supposed to be experts in the law. And Jesus is simply turning things and saying, hey, look, why don't you read the whole thing? Take it in its context and then apply it. And so then he says, he goes on to say, but I say to you, verse six, that something greater than the temple is here. And so he's telling them, listen, you're so caught up in them eating on the Sabbath day and you don't realize that something greater than the temple is here. And what's he talking about? He's talking about himself. The greatest thing that they have is the temple. The temple being God's dwelling place on earth. And they would go out of their way to make sure that the temple stayed holy and that everything stayed good. And Jesus gives them an illustration about David actually went into the temple and talked to the priest in 1 Samuel and, and got him to give him bread out of the temple when it was being swapped out. And David ate bread from the temple. And he's saying, guys, you're, you're missing the forest through the trees. Something greater than the temple and something greater than the law is here amongst you and you're missing it. And he's referring to himself. Then he says in verse seven, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. You would have not have, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so he says, listen, guys, if you would have understood that Jesus, or excuse me, that God is more concerned with compassion and mercy than he is sacrificed, you wouldn't have condemned my innocent followers. And by the way, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath day. So he's telling them that something greater than the Sabbath day is amongst you. And by the way, I am master of the Sabbath day. Jesus speaking of himself. So he's not on good terms here with the Pharisees. They don't like to be wrong. And then he goes on in verse 9 and he says, departing from there. And so they leave that dialogue. He goes into their synagogue, verse 10. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So what's going on is they've just confronted Jesus with a question. Why do your followers eat on the Sabbath day? Why do they pick grain? Now the law says that you cannot harvest grain on the Sabbath day, but it doesn't say anything about just moseying through, grabbing a snack. Kind of like if you were to go out into your house and pick a few blueberries when you got home from church. There's a difference between picking a few blueberries, throwing them in your mouth, and sitting out there scorching in the sun for two hours, picking all of the blueberries. Big difference between a harvest and just getting a little food. And so they don't like the answer that Jesus gave them. And so now they're in the synagogue, and there's a man with a withered hand, and they began to question Jesus so that they could accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you, verse 11, who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So this is a pretty simple one. There's a man with a withered hand, and they say, is it lawful to heal him on the Sabbath? 
And Jesus says, hey, if you had a sheep and he fell into a ditch or he fell into a pit, you would definitely get him out regardless of what time it was. I was, I went hunting one morning in Suffolk and we were hunting with a club and it was freezing cold and we're all in the back of a truck and the guy's going to drop all of us off at our stands. And so it's five o'clock in the morning, something like that. And the truck with all of us in it, freezing cold, stops in the middle of the street. And we're looking around and we're going, what is the deal? We have got stands to get to. Why is he stopping? And we're freezing. And he hollers, there's a cow in the ditch. Everybody get out. So we, we get out of the car and we look. Or we get out of the truck and we look. And sure enough, there's a cow rolled over feet up in a ditch. I'm no expert in getting cows out of a ditch. I don't know what to do. But everybody gets behind the cow and they lift up the cow and push him out. And there was a cow in the ditch. We just got behind him. It took a, it took a minute or two. We pushed the cow out of the ditch. On with our day. Nothing, nothing bad happened. So Jesus says, hey, same story. If a sheep falls into a ditch on the Sabbath day, do you drive by the sheep all day? Do you walk by him and just leave him there because you can't do work on the Sabbath day? Jesus says, no, you stop and you just get the sheep out of the hole. And then you go on about your day being restful. It's one thing to say the right answer. But then Jesus takes action on this right answer. Listen to verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. And so I want you to see what the Pharisees are doing here. They've caught Jesus' disciples eating grain and they've, aha, that's wrong. And Jesus had showed them that no, actually according to the law, it's, it's quite right. And then they said, See, here's a lame man. Can you heal him on the Sabbath day? And they knew the answer. They thought they knew the answer was no. And Jesus says, yeah, it's, it's okay for you to heal this guy on the Sabbath day. And then he heals them and they go, ha, got him. And now they're angry at him because he's just proven them wrong twice. And so what they've done is they've caught Jesus doing something right that they thought was wrong twice. And now you look here at verse 14, it says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. And so the Pharisees want people to obey their petty laws. And they say, it's not okay to do good. It's not okay if you're hungry to eat. And then what do they say it is okay to do? It's okay to plot to destroy somebody. You have to be very, very careful. And we have to be very careful as a traditional church. We all have to be careful because we all get set in our ways sometimes. And it's very easy sometimes for us to not like the way that something's being done. And I have nothing in mind and no one in mind. But I know that even with myself, I'm a young guy and things have been going a certain way and I like things a certain way. And we always have to be careful that we're not like the Pharisees and that we don't want people to do things the way that we do them. But we want people to follow Christ, whatever that means. So it's just something to keep in the back of your mind that we not tell people they can't do something a certain way and then we think evil things about them. Just it's a danger that we all can jump into without even realizing it. And so now you move on to verse 15. And it says, but Jesus aware of this, he's aware that they want to destroy him. Many followed him and he healed them all. So he's withdrew from the area, verse 16. And he warned them not to tell who he was. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And this is where Matthew kind of takes a step back and he gives you in parentheses some things that he's recalling from the Old Testament so that you can see who Jesus is. And so he's applied some of these Old Testament passages to Christ. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, 
my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So Matthew's kind of giving you an explanation as to why Jesus isn't standing up against the Pharisees and fighting at this point. He's withdrew from them because he's fulfilling these promises. Now you get to verse 22. And it says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man saw and spoke. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And so the scene here is that Jesus has just kind of set those people back on their heels twice. And not in a mean way. He's just showed them their error twice. And now Jesus is going on to do something even greater. He's casting out a demon. And these Pharisees who aren't happy with Jesus, and he's not doing things the way he wants to do them, they go ahead and they... they, they cash in all their chips and they say no he is casting out demons by Beelzebub the ruler of the demons and so Jesus isn't doing what they want him to do so they accuse him of doing things by Satan's power not God's power and you go whew dangerous dangerous and a word of warning to all of us here at the church we have no idea what growth looks like right Uh, We can plant and we can water, but the scriptures say that God brings the growth. We don't know what sort of growth that is. And so we can all take a note from this, and we all need to be very careful that just because things aren't always going the way that we want them to go doesn't mean that God's not behind it all. Growth comes in all different shapes and forms. It's just something for us to keep in the back of our mind. And so these Pharisees have completely denied Jesus Christ being the Son of Man. They've denied all of the prophecies, and they're the leaders of this this Jewish community. But all of the leaders are in denial that Jesus is who he says he is. In verse 25, it says that Jesus knew, and knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not fall. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So you go, hmm, that's a good point. If Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, and Satan's kingdom is divided against itself and Satan is casting out Satan how then can the kingdom stand and you go very very logical point very good point for Jesus to make then listen to what he says if Satan cast out Satan how excuse me if Satan cast out Satan he is divided against himself how then will his kingdom stand if I verse 27 by Beelzebul cast out demons so if I'm casting out demons by the prince of the demons By whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. So the question is, okay, there are demon-possessed people out there. And if you accuse me of casting them out by the ruler of the demons, who do your Pharisees cast them out by? And you go, hmm, good question. And I've never read anywhere that the Pharisees had a exorcism ministry of casting out demons and so the question is that 
one person in the midst of many is doing this good thing and casting out demons and the whole group that's supposed to be followers of God says, no, you can't be a follower of God because you're not like us. You have to be of Satan. You go, whew, this is a dangerous place. These Pharisees are. They're supposed to be the leaders and they're not actually leading in godly things. And the person that is leading in godly things, Christ, bringing the kingdom of God to the people, they accuse him of being Satan himself. And then he says this. This is verse 20. Or how can anyone... No, back up to 28, excuse me. He says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's a pretty good stipulation. If Jesus is actually doing these works of God, then the kingdom of God is at hand, just like John the Baptist and Jesus said. Verse 29, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? So he says, very good point. Who can go into a strong man's house and rob his house unless you first do something with the strong man? If you roll up into a strong man's house without binding him, he is going to shoot you, right? He's going to go to town with you if you roll into the strong man's house. And so he says, listen, you have to do something to the strong man before you can go into his house and plunder it. He who is not with me, verse 30, is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. I'm going to keep reading, then we're going to backtrack. You broad of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so there's a lot of... Listen, last week we said... Jesus comes on the scene and he says, follow me because my burden is light and my yoke is easy. And that is on everybody's list of favorite verses. Whoever speaks against, therefore any of you who sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. That's not really on anybody's list of favorite verses. That's on everybody's list of questionable verses like what in the world is this? We call it the unpardonable sin. What is this that Jesus is speaking about? Well, let's kind of look at the context of what we're talking about. Jesus is doing godly things. He's doing things by the power of God. And there's a group of people who are calling themselves godly amongst him, right? Jesus isn't in the middle of nowhere doing miracles and lost people are going, yeah, I don't know about that. Jesus is in the midst of people who are calling themselves Christians and are calling themselves God's followers. And they're God's followers who are looking at Jesus going, Nope, that's not of God. And so the unforgivable sin here, what we're calling it, the unpardonable sin, within its context, is these people who are saying the works of God are of the devil. And these are people who are calling themselves leaders, calling themselves followers of God. They're the ones who are attributing God's works to Satan. Now, hopefully you realize whew, 
Never done that. Good. I'm in good shape. Now, I want to bring a few things to your mind when you're thinking unforgivable, can't be forgiven. There's a couple scriptures that I think tie into this. You have scriptures in Hebrews that says that in Hebrews chapter 6, those people who have tasted of the heavenly things and then turned from it, it's impossible for them again to return to repentance. And you realize that this unforgivable sin isn't somebody who's out in the world thinking about the things of God, but this is somebody who's been in and around and experienced the things of God. Somebody who's in neck deep. And then they turn away from it and they walk away. That seems to be the person that the book of Hebrews is talking about. It's impossible to restore to forgiveness. And it seems within the context of Matthew chapter 12 that this unpardonable sin are people who are leaders, people who are Christians, and people who are very familiar with the things of God. And then they love their ways more than they love God's ways. And when God does things they're uncomfortable with, they attribute the works of Holy Spirit to Satan as opposed to giving God the credit. And so these are people who are very vengeful and wrathful and venomous because he calls them a broad of vipers. These are those sorts of people who are doing those sorts of things. And you go, well, who would do that? I've seen a couple of them. I've seen several people do that sort of thing. And he says here that this is the unforgivable sin. Now, within that context, think about Paul. Who was Paul before he got saved? Paul says that I was the chief sinner. I was a blasphemer. I was all of these things. And so what seems like the unforgivable sin, Paul was forgiven of when he came to Christ. Because you wouldn't say that Paul died having unforgiven sin in his life, right? We would all feel pretty comfortable that anything that Paul did wrong, he was forgiven of. You with me? And so within this context, it seems to be People who are in the kingdom or or right there around the kingdom that attribute God's works to Satan, that's who it's unforgivable for. And Paul, being a lost man, attributing those works to Satan, seems to be able to be forgiven of him when he comes to Christ because the blood of Jesus Christ is able to forgive sin. It's the people who are in and around and do these things unto death that seems that they're not forgiven for. And so I know that was a whole lot to take in. I know it may have seemed confusing at times. You guys are looking at me like I've got a horse head on, but it's okay. Hopefully it makes a little bit more sense that this isn't something that I think you, as a regular church attender, regular member of Keshia Baptist Church, have to go to bed worrying about that you're doing. If you are on board with the works of God, don't be concerned that you've committed the unpardonable sin. With me? We'll talk about this more Wednesday night if you've got any questions about it. But he goes in verse 34, and he calls them a broad of vipers. Now, what is a broad of vipers that he's calling them? Everybody knows that a viper is a poisonous snake, a very poisonous snake that likes to camouflage itself, kind of do a little bit of trickery in like a chameleon camouflaging himself. And this sort of snake would lay a bunch of eggs, and then it would stick around kind of hidden in the shadows, hidden amongst the foliage, and bite anyone who tries to mess with the eggs. Well, when a group of snake eggs hatch that are vipers, you have a broad of vipers. You have a bunch of little snakes that are now squirming around the snake nest, all of which are venomous. Pretty dangerous thing. And so when he calls them that, he's calling them a a snake's nest, if you will, full of freshly hatched snakelings. 
That's, that's not a very good thing to be called. Think of all the titles that I think that grandma or grandpa could give you. That'd be a bad one. Same thing for Jesus. Anyways, and so he goes on to tell them that they're evil, that what's in their heart is evil, and out of the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And he goes on to tell them things we've already talked about. Good trees bring good fruit, good treasure, good treasure, evil treasure, evil treasure. And then he goes on to say, verse 36, and this is a very, uh, a very applicable point to us today, I think. But I tell you in verse 36 that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I think this is one area of application that we could really give thought to. I've read that on average, the average person has about 30 conversations each day. To which, if you were to write them in a book, would take up 50 to 60 pages each day. And so it's said that just by the words you say could fill up 20 or so 200-page books. Now, my math is bad on this, so we're just, just run with me here. You could fill up 20 or so books, about 200 pages long, just with the words you say in each year. And the Scripture says that by your words, you're going to give an account. And your words are going to justify you or they're going to condemn you. And it says that you're going to be held accountable for every careless word that you say. And so just as an exercise this week, think about all of the things that you say. Think about the things that you say when people are around. And then think about the careless things that you say after those people leave. Okay? Just give thought to it. I'm not trying to rain down conviction on you, but we have a way of being very free with our tongues and saying whatever comes in mind, and it's not always the most pleasant things to come in mind. We probably say a lot more negative things than we realize as opposed to encouraging things, even if they're true. Just because something's true doesn't mean we need to affirm it with our lips, right? Something can be true, and I know it, and you know it, and it can just go unsaid. Especially if it's about somebody and it's negative. So, then we go on, and he keeps going. By then, this is verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher. Okay, so what has Jesus done so far? He's healed a blind man. He's, uh, he's cast out a demon, and these same people are around. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees, verse 38, said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. If you were Jesus, what would you think? You want a sign. You want a sign. I've, I've healed the lame. I've made the blind see. I've turned water into wine. I've, I've risen people from the dead, right? And just in front of you, I cast out a demon. And earlier, I've cast legions of demons into to swine. And you got to see all of that. Now they come to him and they say, we want to see a sign. Show us. He answered and said to them, Verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, verse 41, will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so he says, listen, you want a sign? Here's your sign. And essentially, this is his first telling of them that he's going to die. He's going to be put in the grave and three days later, he's going to raise from the dead. And then he says, listen, 
when everything's said and done and it's time for the judgment. You're going to have the people of Nineveh over here and you're going to have you here. And the people of Nineveh who you thought were wicked and nasty and disgusting, they're going to condemn you because you didn't repent when the Son of Man came to visit you and they repented when a prophet was here. And I'm telling you that something greater than Jonah is here and he's speaking of himself. Then in verse 42 says, The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so he says again, listen, that person repented at something far lesser than what you have here. And so you're going to be held to a much higher standard because you were shown something great and these people were not shown anything near as great and they repented and you are still hardened in your sin. And so then he goes on, and this is this is a, seems a little out of place, but hopefully it'll make sense. The Pharisees were pushing not that people be godly, but they were pushing somewhat of a moralism, right? We have this same sort of thing happening in churches today. If you look at a lot of, uh, I don't know if I want to call them our brothers and sisters in Christ out west or not, but the, the California churches that, that follow us in name push more of a morality and a political correctness than they do indwelling of Christ and following what God says. And so there are groups of people who push morality. And that's a lot of what they're doing out west. And so these Pharisees are doing somewhat of the same thing. We just want you to do what we're telling you to do. And what we would preach is that we want you to repent of your sin. We want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit and we want you to follow Christ. And so we don't just want you to, as a church, we don't just want you to stop your bad behavior and do good. Like, that's not what we're about here. We want you to be filled with Christ and live a life that glorifies God. And so when you stop doing whatever sin you have, that void is filled with Christ and you're pursuing Him. And not so with the Pharisees. And so that's kind of the context for what he says here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. And so kind of what he's getting at here is he's saying that, listen, when you have an evil spirit, and don't think evil, all evil spirits have to, be, have, to have some sort of exorcism to leave a person. Uh, the book of James says, uh, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And so sometimes you could have something in your life that's drawing you towards negative things, towards sin, and when you resist that sort of sin, that temptation flees you. Okay? And so what he's saying here is he's saying, listen, if you're just pushing morality, if you're just trying to tell people stop doing bad for the sake of doing bad, what happens is that they become clean on the inside. And once they become clean on the inside, it's more dangerous for them because then those evil things will come back around, they'll multiply, and then they'll inhabit that person again and they'll be worse off than they were in the beginning. Many of you may have seen people who go through uh, some sort of rehab They go through some sort of drug rehabilitation program that's not Christ-centered. And so they become clean just of their own free will, and then a little bit of time goes by, and then they get right back into the same mess that they got out of, and it's even worse this time. 
And reason being is because they don't fill that void with Christ and that temptation, that evil evil spirit. Sometimes they come back and they re-inhabit the person and make things even worse. And so he says that to them. He says, it's going to be the same way with you guys. Then he goes on, verse 46. While he was still speaking, the crowds... While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my mother and my sister and my brother. And so here you realize that we who do the will of Jesus, excuse me, we who do the will of God are the family of Christ. And what this goes to say in a greater context is that those of us who are doing the will of the father, us in this room, we are each other's mother brother, sister, and everything else. And so we, as a body, are family. And because we're a family, there's certain things that we need to do. We need to be people who are looking out for each other. We need to be people who are loving each other unconditionally. We need to be people who are helping each other along. And all of this is part of the purpose of the church. That's why we do things the way that we do. That's why we fellowship together. That's why we do things so that we can get to know each other. And then we can be there for each other when times get rough. And I think that this is something that we are getting better and better and better at uh, as time goes on. And so, brothers and sisters, as we, we close, I am absolutely delighted for those of you who are about doing the will of God to call you my family. Love you guys. I care about you. And I hope that you will take some points of application from this message in Matthew chapter 12. I hope that you'll consider your words, your idle words as you go into this week. I hope that you'll consider some of the other things that we talked about. And I hope that maybe you might go out of your way this week to show somebody here uh, that you care about them like family. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the unity that is found in him. Lord, I pray that we as a body wouldn't have an ounce of that Pharisaic attitude amongst us. But I pray that we would be a people who are about doing your will. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to move forward and follow your guidance, Lord, I pray that for each of us, that you would give us discernment. That you would give us discernment to know what is and what is not of the Spirit. And Lord, help us to be able to grow in unity and help us to be able to grow together. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you would stand for our hymn of invitation. Well, it was good to worship with you all again today. I hope that you all have a great uh, scorching week. I hope that you're able to enjoy a little bit of air conditioning here and there. And I hope that uh, we will continue to grow together in unity and as a body. And I look forward to the great things that uh, the Lord is doing amongst us. Dr. Tarkington, would you close us in prayer?